1 Corinthians chapter 8. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us this morning. Thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to be gathered here in Sunday school around your word. God, we pray, Lord, that you'd help us. And God, pray that you'd lead us. God, guide us and direct us. Lord, uh, Lord, we, we believe, God, and we know, Lord, that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, God, Lord. And without his leading, without his direction, God, Lord, we're not going to be able to understand much of anything, Lord. And so, God, we pray for mercy, God, in that regard, Lord. We ask you, Lord, to be very, uh, Lord, be very merciful, very gracious to us, Lord. We pray you'd forgive us, God, of our sins. Lord, help us, God, to approach your word, God, with the reverence that it merits. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're looking here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We, uh, we kind of finished our study as far as, as far as I want to go with uh, Daniel and uh, Matthew 24, 25, all that stuff. And so uh, we've kind of left off. I, I've been, I started about a year and a half ago, I guess, going through 1 Corinthians, and we've gotten pretty close to being finished. And we've stopped in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've... Uh, Preaching is what we've been doing. We've been we got through First Corinthians fifteen, talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means. It's been a little while since we've been there, so I want to get started back on this and try and finish because there are other things that I want to cover. Uh, but it kind of nags me in the back of my mind, knowing I've got something unfinished. So I want to finish this. But I was reading through First Corinthians uh, earlier this week, and I. We've, I come across 1 Corinthians chapter 8 in the course of trying to get to chapter 15. And I want to go back and revisit this uh, because the more I read it, the clearer it gets in my own mind. And we've already been through chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. I don't want to take a whole lot of time here. But what I'm going to try and do this morning is give you an overview of chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. When Paul, and I've said this before in our studies on 1 Corinthians, when Paul goes through 1 Corinthians and in a lot of his books, uh, it's, it's easy for you to go through uh, 1 Corinthians and take the attitude, well, when I hit this section of verses, Paul is dealing with this. And then when I hit this over here, Paul's dealing with this. And it does look that way. Uh, but to me, when I read it, knowing how uh, I preach and listening to other preachers preach. Paul sounds very similar to a Baptist preacher. It, it, he's, and I don't mean this in a disrespectful sense, but it's, to me it's humorous. He sounds very disconnected. Uh, he'll start talking about one thing, and then he'll change the subject and start talking about something else. And you're sitting here, if you're paying attention, which is a statement all in, in and of itself, because a lot of times we read and we don't pay attention. We're just reading just to read. Don't do that. Uh, try to pay attention. But if you're paying attention, uh, he goes from this to this, and you're sitting here wondering, why did you change the subject to this? For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I'm not going to read yet, uh, but he's talking about eating meats that are offered to idols. And then when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he's talking about taking care of a preacher by paying him. What's that got to do with meats offering to idols? You say, well, he's changed the subject. Okay, well then why in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 does he get back to verse 14, 1 Corinthians 10, 14, wherefore my dearly beloved flee from, from idolatry. He's back at what he's talking about in chapter 8. So 
so there's a point that he's trying to make. I believe that with all my heart. I, I know that that's the case. And so let me, let, let me try to go through these things. Uh, chapter 8, 9, and 10, let me just give you the basic idea of what Paul's trying to get across. Paul is talking about matters of temperance. And when we talk about temperance, when you discuss the subject of temperance, to temper is to, uh, let me, let me uh, you give another term, although I like the biblical term because that's what God chose to use. But the term is self-control. You have the ability to do something, but you don't permit yourself to do it. It's very similar to discipline, self-discipline. And uh, make no mistake about it, that is a very important part of your Christianity. Self-control is a very important part of your Christianity. The things that I could do does not mean that I should do them. That is a very important part of your Christianity for you to understand. And that is what Paul deals with from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And not only does he deal with that as a fact, but he deals with why that's so. And it could go without saying, just some introductory remarks, it could go without saying that you shouldn't engage in everything that you could Engaging, You shouldn't do it even though you could for your own sake. But one of the, the, the predominant purpose behind which Paul discusses this stuff is not for your personal sake. It's for somebody else. Uh, there are things that you could do in this Christian life and quote unquote get away with in a sense, but you shouldn't do it. You say, oh yeah, because I know that'll hurt me. Well, Paul lays a greater emphasis on the fact that it's going to hurt somebody else. And they're wrong in their understanding. And Paul says you should still accommodate them. Paul says you should still be mindful of them. And so people will begin to take a look at that and say, well, I don't feel like that's right. Well, let me ask you something. Did the Lord deal with you in grace? Did the Lord deal with you in long suffering? There were plenty of things that you did not understand. There, listen, truth be told, there are plenty of things that you don't understand right now. And God is still dealing with you. God is still working on you. Boy, that's one of the things that the Lord has impressed upon my heart this past week. God uh, really gave me some help about some things this past week. I feel like I've had a little minor breakthrough about some things I've been thinking about and dealing with. And the thing that astounds me, when you get to a place like that in your life, the thing that, that really blows my mind, and I know it in here, I, I, I walk with the cognizance of, hey, God deals with me by grace. But then when God opens your eyes to something in a way, we say, God gave me light on this, or God really impressed my heart with this, and God really opens your eyes to how ignorant you've been walking and God opens your eyes, it really strikes you with a measure, a large measure of humility in that God, all the time you've been walking in darkness, God has been faithful to still deal with you about things. God has still been consistent. Even though you've been a fool, even though you, you, you don't know, or perhaps, which is what happens to us a lot of times, God, uh, God will deal with you about something and you slough it off. 
you procrastinate or say, well, I'll get to that here in tomorrow. And I'm talking about spiritual matters. God says, hey, this is my expectations. And you say, boy, I know I really need to get that taken care of. But you don't do nothing about it. And yet God, uh, your fellowship is hindered, but God still takes care of you. God still takes care of your family. Your family's not starving. I, I don't see anybody in here this morning to where you ain't got no food to eat. It, you understand what I'm saying? And then when you finally begin to yield and you finally, okay, now's the time I've got to do something about that. I'm tired of not having fellowship with God like I'd like. And then all of a sudden, man, God will open up the doors and open the windows of heaven and pour out his blessings to you. And you sit there enamored. You sit there astounded and say, and God has taken care of me in my ignorance here for the last however long it's been. And then when you deal with somebody, somebody that's been ignorant, you know, somebody that's a nonconformist to what you think is right, and you're probably right. All of a sudden, uh, no, they throw them off to the side and, you know, there's no hope for them. That's not temperance. And that is what Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, and 10. Hey, you've got some folks that are in the same situation in their spiritual walk with the Lord that you were in before you got saved, and yet God didn't kill you before you got saved. God dealt with you faithfully because that's his nature. God dealt with you in his mercy because that's his nature. Well, it would behoove us if we have the divine nature in us, which is what Second Peter 1 said. It would behoove us to do the very same thing. So that's what Paul's talking about. So a little introduction. Let me throw this in here as well, and then we'll read the passage. What follows in chapters 8, 9, and 10 are not matters of obedience. They are matters of temperance. In other words, uh, what Paul's dealing with is not, it is not, well, I know God told me to do this. Should I or should, should I not do that? That is not what Paul's discussing. In other words, what Paul's not talking about is, uh, well, I know that God said I shouldn't drink beer, which God did say that, by the way. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Well, I know God said I shouldn't drink beer. God, I know God said I shouldn't do this or that. Should I or should I not do it? That is not what's up for debate in these chapters. What's up, what, what Paul's dealing with is, hey, I have the liberty, and you'll see that term here in just a second. I have the liberty to do this. Should I do it, though? Let, let's go. Look in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Now, as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man thinketh that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. So immediately what you have pop up in chapter 8 is this matter of knowledge. Now, let me point out a couple, at least one thing to you about this matter of knowledge. Whenever you're dealing with matters of conscience, which is exactly what Paul's going to deal with here in chapter 8, if you look in uh, verse 10 of the same chapter, for if any man see thee which hath knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him that's weak. 
Look up in chat, uh, verse 7. Howbeit there's not in every man that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience. See, you deal with this thing of conscience, every time what you're going to be dealing with is knowledge. Do you know? Does the other guy know? Do you understand? Matters of conscience are matters of knowledge. The word conscience is con science. Conscience, that's how you spell it. Con means with. Science means knowledge or study of. So the word conscience means with knowledge. And so when you're dealing with matters of conscience, what you're dealing with is whether or not a man knows something. That is why, just throw this in here as a little rabbit trail, that's why it's important for you to be well-informed as a Christian, as a person. It is very important for you to be uh, knowledgeable of the truth. Because if you're deceived, if you believe that something is true and it's not, you'll have something that seems like it's pricking you in your heart, but that it could very well be a misinformed conscience, which is the case in 1 Corinthians 8. Look, look at what he says. He says, if any man love God, the same is known of him. Uh, as concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. So man sets up a statue of Mary. That is just a piece of rock. That is, uh, it's just a piece of stone. There's nothing to it. That's not Mary. That, that's not what Mary looked like. Go down to the Catholic Church and you see a picture of Jesus on the wall. Uh, we used to have a picture in here of uh, Jesus walking on the water. It's a pretty awesome picture. But that's not Jesus. You say, what's Jesus look like? I don't know. My Bible didn't come with pictures. So, I mean, I can, I can give you a good standard guess as to what he looks like because he was a Jew. So I can give you a good standard guess. But much beyond that, I don't know what he looks like. So anyways, so little picture of Jesus on the wall in a Catholic church, that's nothing. These men, you know, get in there and they bow down to it and all that. It's nothing. It's nothing. I saw a little thing uh, on YouTube yesterday and the day before it keeps popping up. And it's this stuff of uh, CBS, their little YouTube channel has this thing to where some lady, some reporter is on the channel saying that, Hollywood witches are now putting a spell over all their viewers. Well, man, Hollywood's been doing that for years. I mean, maybe not through witches, but a lot of people sit there and bite their fingers off. That's nothing. Now, I know why I get a little bit of resistance there. It's because some of you think that that's something. And that's because, it's because... You have more of a fear of witches than you do of God. Yeah. Uh. Oh, my soul. Hollywood witches. Boy, they're going to put a spell on all these people that are watching. Well, why does that make you concerned? But when a preacher tells you, hey, God's going to blister your hide if you don't start doing right.
Your fear is in the wrong place. You're afraid, you're afraid of the wrong thing. The Bible says, the Bible says that witchcraft is a work of the flesh. That's Galatians chapter 5. I'm not worried about no witch. I'm not going to stand up here and say, oh, I'll take on a witch. Or, I'm not going to say anything stupid like that. I believe in principalities and powers by far. If I get in here and I hear something go bump while I'm praying, I don't get in here and uh, try to charge hell with a water pistol filled with gasoline, so to speak. You say, how do you deal with it? In the name of the Lord. I pray God will do something about it. Yes, sir. Not worried about no witch. Pray about it. I'll tell you an easier way to play, pray, deal with the witches in Hollywood. Quit watching Hollywood. <laughs> but that's probably not acceptable to a lot of folks, but that's okay. What Paul's saying is an idol's nothing. There's nothing to it. Okay. Verse 5, for though there, there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. All right? So verse 7, he says, how be it, however, how be it, there is not in every man that knowledge. Now, you think about that, man. The moment you get saved, there is supposed to be an awareness that breaks in on your heart and mind that, hey, this is the only God that there is. There is no other God. Baal is not real. It, it's tied to something, but he's not real. Molech is not real. Uh, little little uh, Mary in the Catholic Church, that Mary is not real. Mary, the actual mother of Jesus as the man, she was real. But that's not the same Mary they worship, and that Mary does not exist. Uh, Buddha, as far as a god, he's not real. Allah, he, he's not real. None of those things are real. Howbeit, there's not in every man that knowledge. Now, what, I was gonna, what I was trying to get across to you is that when you come to that understanding of, hey, all these gods are not real, there's only one god. And one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You know what that produces? It produces a great measure of liberty. Doesn't it? Does it not? It produces a great measure of liberty. One of the things that it'll do is it'll set you fear, it'll set you free from an undue measure of fear. Yes, sir, that's what I was talking about a minute ago. But he says, Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge for some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So here's a man who doesn't have an understanding in his own mind that, hey, this idol, all it is is just a block of wood, all it is is a block of stone. And so if he eats something that's been offered to that idol, then his conscience is defiled. Which says something. It says this. Even in a weakened state, even in, in, in an erroneous state of mind, if a man doesn't understand everything that he's supposed to understand, there is still a need to keep your conscience clean. Your conscience might not be as strong as somebody else's. It might not be as well informed as somebody else's. 
But that conscience cannot stand to be in a defiled state. That goes for you, but it goes for your brother as well. Here's a man who trusted Christ, and he doesn't understand everything that you have. Well, you have to walk, you have to walk in the light of conscience. Hey, I know that this idol's nothing. Well, what that does is that, that gives you a measure of liberty. It sets you free. It sets you free from the worry about, hey, if I, uh, if I walk into this Catholic church, for an example, I walk into this Catholic church, uh, there's something that's going to get all over me. No, there's, there's nothing in there. What that is, is that's the spirit of man. Could be evil spirits in there. I don't doubt that there's some of that stuff going on. But hey, man, you're a Christian. You're a child of God. So, but there's not in that, there's not in every man that understanding. Uh, if you take, let me, let, me, let me put it to you like this, and then we'll try and get on. I'm trying not to drag this out, but the farther I go, the more that there is to say. Uh, the Catholic priest has this little wafer that he holds up called the Eucharist. They also call that the host. And this Eucharist, he takes it and he holds it up and he's got some uh, fermented wine. He's got some hooch in a little cup. And he does this process called transubstantiation. And what that is supposed to do when he does his little hocus pocus over that is that is supposed to turn that stuff physically, not in a spiritual sense. It's not a type. The Catholic Church teaches and believes that that is physically turned into the literal blood and body of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you're looking at that little host, you are now looking at the body of Jesus Christ, literally, physically. That's what they believe. When you go up there and partake of that wine, of course, they don't let you partake of it. The, drink, the priest gets to drink all of it. And a little interesting, ain't it? But anyways, uh, it's okay for the priest to get tipsy, but not the congregation. But anyways, uh, that's the literal, what they teach is that's the literal blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you receive those things, you're receiving Christ. That's what they teach. Well, we have the understanding that that's not true. No priest has the ability, no priest, no preacher, no whatever has the ability to do those things. And so if it was okay to drink wine, you could go up there and it, that's not going to have any effect on you. You remember where the Lord said, he said, what defiles a man is not what goes into him, but what comes out of him. Out, and he goes on to say, he says, uh, out of the heart proceeds, and then he gives a list of things. Uh, I forget what the list is. I'm not even going to try to quote it. I'll make up a bunch of things. But uh, he said, what goes into a man, he said, it goes down into his belly and then out into the draught. That's the septic tank. You understand what he's talking about there. So that's not what defiles a man. Well, in the same sense, that's what we're dealing with here. Uh, if you partook of that little wafer, you shouldn't do that. And we'll get to why. You shouldn't partake of that wafer. You shouldn't partake of that drink down there at the Roman Catholic Church. But you could in a technical sense, and it's not going to send you to hell. That's important for you to understand. Look at what he says. He says, how be it, verse 7, there is not in every man that knowledge for some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto the idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So this guy thinks, this other guy thinks if he partakes of it, it it's something. It's something to be watched out for. 
Well, Paul says, but meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better. Doesn't take us to God. Neither if we eat not are we the worse. If we don't partake, it doesn't put us farther away. Verse 9, he said, but take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. That's the word that I used on purpose because that's what Paul says. It's liberty. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians 8 and look in Galatians 2. Very quickly, Galatians chapter 2 and look in verse, uh, let's look in verse 1. We'll read, read real quick. Galatians 2 and verse 1. <clears throat> Excuse me. Paul said, Then 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also and went up. I, and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, that's the gospel of the grace of God, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, he's a Gentile, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in. These are people who said they're saved, but they're not saved. They're false brethren. They're unawares brought in who came in privily, privately, to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. These brethren, let me, uh, let me abbreviate the, the whole book of Galatians for you. These brethren, false brethren that are brought in, they're saying, okay, you're saved by grace through faith, but you also have to be circumcised. Titus, he's Gentile, he's not a Jew. Circumcision not for the Gentiles. He said, you've got, they saying you've got to be circumcised and you have to observe the law of Moses in order to be saved as well. And Paul said, that's not true because what we have, verse 4, is we've got great liberty in Christ Jesus. That's the term that he uses. You can go on and read the rest of chapter 2 and I think that'll be pretty clear to you. So when Paul talks about liberty in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9, what he's talking about is, hey, you could partake of these things offered to these idols, and it's not going to send you to hell. You could do it. It's a technical thing. But look at what he says. He said, verse 8, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9, he said, Take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. So there's the foundation that's laid. Hey, I can, as a Christian, I can partake in meats offered to idols because I'm saved. And that if I put that meat in my mouth, chew it up and swallow it, it's not going to send me to hell. That is a great liberty. That's great liberty. But Paul said, you better be careful. In, he said, what he's going to say is don't do it. And the reason that you should not do it is not because it's going to send you to hell, but because of the other guy. And in this instance, chapter 8, what he says, verse 10, look at what he says. He says, for if any man see thee which hath knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Here's a man, here you are, you have the understanding and the knowledge, hey, I can eat this meat and it's not going to send me to hell. And so you, here you sit down and you eat this meat. And what you don't realize is that here's a guy who doesn't have that understanding and he's watching you. And he's thinking, oh man, he's eating that meat that's been offered to that idol. 
And he, in his mind, his conscience is bearing with him in his mind, hey, that's something. There's something to that. But at the same time that he does that, he looks at you and he says, well, he's a well-seasoned brother in the Lord and he's saved and he's been saved for 30 or 40 years. He's well-grounded. Well, if he can do it, then I'm going to do it. You're doing it because you've got the understanding. This guy doesn't understand what you understand. You're doing it because you got the understanding. He's going to do it because he sees you doing it, but he's doing it without the understanding. And you know what the Bible says that that's going to do? That's going to defile his conscience. And so when he does it, it's not done in faith. And so now he's going to perish. It's going to mess him up. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and look in Romans chapter 14. We don't have time to cover all of Romans chapter 14, but Romans chapter 14 is basically dealing with the same thing. It, it's basically dealing with, uh, well, just look at the beginning of the chapter. I think you can see it very quick. Him that is weak in the faith, Romans 14, 1, him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that, that he may eat all things. There's the well-seasoned guy. There's the man who understands. Another who is weak, he doesn't understand. He eateth herbs. See, you got, you got the two guys. Well, look at what Paul tells these folks at Rome to do. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Well, this looks like there's, what it looks like starting out when you read Romans 14 is it looks like there's two different standards for the guys. God says it's okay for this guy to do it, and God says it's okay for this guy not to do it. That is not what's going on. God's truth is absolute. What's right is right. You understand that? What's true is true. Either it's right to eat meats offered unto idols, or it's not. What Paul is explaining is the doctrinal sense of the matter is, if you eat meats offered unto idols, you're not going to go to hell. He goes on to say, you shouldn't do it. We'll get to that here in just a second. But you need to understand it's not going to send you to hell. Here's the problem with the guy that doesn't understand. Look at the end of the verse. Verse 20, or end of the chapter, verse 20. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it's evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended. Or made weak. Verse 22. Here's the guy that has knowledge. Paul addresses him and he says. Hast thou faith? Well have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in the thing which he alloweth. Hey I can eat these meats offered to idols. I'm not going to go to hell. So I'm going to allow it. Yeah but there's a measure of condemnation that's going to come on you. You say what's the measure? Well you're going to cause this other guy to stumble. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth, and he that doubteth, there's the guy who doesn't understand, he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith, 
for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So what Paul is trying to get across, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, is whatever you do in the Christian life, you must do it by faith. You say, but brother so-and-so's doing it. If you can't do it by faith, you should not do it. If you cannot do it with the confidence, I know that this is right. You should not do it. Doesn't matter what it is. Watching television, watching some TV program, uh, you fill in the blanks. I think you can fill, it, fill in the blanks. You get ready to do something that you've seen somebody else do, and you begin to put your hand on that, and there's something in your heart that seems like it's grieved, you should stop. You say, yeah, but I've seen Brother So-and-so do it, and I've even heard Brother Nathan or Brother Mike or Brother Mark McGay. I've heard these preachers preach, and they do it, and they say it's okay. Then you should stop what you're doing, and you should get on your knees and commit that thing to a season of prayer and say, God, I need to understand. I hear what these preachers are saying, but God, I need to know. I need to understand. And until you can do it by faith, don't do it. That's how the just shall live by faith. They don't live by what they see somebody else do. They don't live by the lust of their flesh. They live by faith. Right? Okay. That's how this other guy has to live too. That's how your other brothers and sisters have to live. That's not only how I have to live, that's how Brother Chris has to live. And listen, that's something that I have to bear in mind. When I get ready to do something, I have to bear in mind, hey, Brother Chris is here, Miss Joyce is here, uh, Brother Michael and Sister Lynn. I'm just calling various people. The, these people are here. They have to live by faith too. And what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is the risk that you take when you get ready to partake in something that you have liberty to do is that the onlookers are going to look at you and say, he's a well-seasoned Christian. He's been saved for a while. He's a pastor. He's some kind of a preacher. If he's doing it, it has to be okay. And maybe it is. But if they don't have that understanding, if they're not convinced by faith, hey, I see it in the Word of God, then... You're, they are violating their conscience, and you've helped put them up to it. You say, Brother Nathan, that's not fair. Who said anything about fair? Who said the Christian life was about being fair? Let's, let's talk about Jesus dying for your sins. Was that fair? That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is what is identified in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 8. Now it's touching things offered unto idols. We have all knowledge. You got the knowledge? Hey, yes, I have knowledge. This brings great liberty. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity. What we're talking about is Christian charity. What we're talking about is dealing with our Christian brothers and sisters in the fact that they don't understand well, I'm going to forego some of my God-given liberty so that they can get established so that I'm not a stumbling block to them in their immaturity. You know why this cuts across 
our grain as people because we as people are self-centered. Yes, sir. It's not just an American thing. It's not just a Southerner thing. It is a people thing. Hey, if I can do something, I'm going to do it because, hey, that's my God-given right. And what Paul's saying is, just be careful. When you get ready to take advantage of your quote-unquote God-given rights, and they're there. We'll look at it in chapter 9. They're there. But when you get ready to do that, you better be mindful of the guy who's watching you. And he's like a little son who's going to try and follow in your footsteps. Paul looked at Timothy and said, hey, you're my son in the faith. Hey, listen, I don't care who you are in here this morning. Somebody's looking up to you. Yes, sir. And it's probably somebody more, it's probably more folks than you really think are looking up to you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Look in verse, verse 11. This is 1 Corinthians 8, verse 11. And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Paul identifies it as a sin against your brother first. He said, when you sin against your brother, you're sinning against Christ. You know what that sin is based in? Well, I'm just going to do what I want, and I have the right to do it. I have the liberty to do it. Let me put it that way. I have the liberty to do it, so I'm just going to do what I want. Okay? The Lord said, you're sinning against your brother, and that's a sin against Christ. Verse 13, now watch. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. That's not, he doesn't say, lest I offend my brother. That's not what it says. He said, lest I make my brother to offend. Paul said, to a certain degree, I'm going to order my life to be an example to my weak brothers and sisters around me so that they do not offend. Do you understand that? That's, a, that's an important distinction. Now watch what he does in chapter 9. I'm conscious of the time. We've got plenty of time. Please be done. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, watch what he does. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you for the seal of mine apostleship. Are ye in the Lord? Now, you know what he's done in chapter 9? He's taken himself and he's put himself way up here. Ain't I an apostle is what he says. He just got done telling you, hey, you should forego some of your liberty if that's going to be an offense to a brother and cause him to violate his conscience. You should, you should temper those things. Now he turns around and he says, he's fixing to give you an example. He says, ain't I an apostle? Have I, ain't I free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Verse 3, mine answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? That's Peter. Boy, Paul said he had the authority to lead Peter. That's, that's a big statement. Verse 6, or I only and Barnabas, have we not power to forbear working? Paul said, you, you remember who Paul is. Paul's the guy who uh, 
he worked with his own hands uh, as a tent maker. And he said in one place that he did that so that the church would not be chargeable. It's actually right here in 1 Corinthians 9. But he provides for his own needs. He said that in Philippians chapter 4. Well, he says, me and Barnabas, as preachers of the gospel, we have the ability to quit working. Watch what he does. Who goeth a warfare at any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Or who, who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law, saith not the law the same also. For it's written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for the oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we should reap your carnal things? Paul is talking about it's right for God's people to take care of God's preachers. You, can you see that? This is, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is what it seems like 1 Corinthians 9 is about. Paul said, I have the right to expect that God's people take care of me physically because I take care of God's people spiritually. Galatians chapter 6 says the same thing. Paul tells the church, churches at Galatia, hey, be ready to communicate. Be ready to distribute according to the needs of God's ministers. You see that in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, or I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 6. Well, Look at what he says, verse 12. If others be partaker of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Now watch what he's going to do. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? It's Old Testament. He's using the Old Testament example. And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Now here's what you have so far. Paul's gotten saved. God's made him an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is establishing in 1 Corinthians 9. He just got done establishing the fact in 1 Corinthians 8. Hey, you should temper yourself if that's going to be a hindrance to somebody and their walk with the Lord. You should be temperate. He doesn't use that term yet, but that's what he's talking about. In 1 Corinthians 9, he launches out into this discourse about, I'm an apostle. I have the right to expect. I'm entitled. <laughs> that's what he's saying. I'm entitled to the financial provision of God's people because I have taken on my shoulders the responsibility, God has placed on my shoulders, I should say, the responsibility of caring for the needs of God's, uh, the spiritual needs of God's people. That's what he says. But watch what he does. Verse 15, but I have used none of these things. Neither have I written these things that it should be so done unto me, for it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. 
For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me, what is my reward then? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge that I abuse not my power in the gospel. You see what he says? He says that I abuse not my power in the gospel. Paul said, I have power in the gospel. What's he talking about? The power that he's talking about is the right to expect that God's people communicate to him physical things in exchange for his spiritual leadership, for his spiritual. You see that concept? But Paul said, I don't use that. Paul said, I'm not going to do that. Now listen, let me pause the button right here and give you a quick illustration. What would you think if you tried to hire a pastor? And I use the term hire appropriately. He tried to hire a pastor and he said, well, you know, I've got to have my needs met before I can come pastor People's Baptist Church. And you said, okay, we'll, uh, we'll try and put you together a little package. <laughs> uh, we'll put you together a package and we'll get back with you. And you offered this guy $90,000 a year, which is unheard of in this area, right? I, I don't, well, regardless. <clears throat> We're going to offer this guy $90,000 a year. We'll pay his life insurance. We'll contribute to a 401k for him, right? And you go and give this to this guy, and this guy says, that's not enough. Now, I heard, I heard some grunts. You wouldn't, think, you wouldn't think much of that guy, would you? Because the idea is, or at least the idea should be, What's more important, whether the guy gets paid or the gospel going out? God's people being a state. Which one's more important? Well, I think you can understand what's more important is the gospel going out. I'm not, I'm not throwing stones at People's Baptist Church. I want you to understand that. I'm trying to deal with the text and get you to understand something. You wouldn't have any respect for a guy who insisted Hey, I got to have $120,000 a year or I can't mess with you little peons down in Folkestone, Georgia. You'd look at him and say, well, good riddance. And really, in a sense, rightfully so, because we're not to be hirelings. You understand that emotion that that evokes in your heart? What the expectation on your part is, well, this guy, sure, we'll take care of him. I'm dealing with 1 Corinthians 9. Listen to me. Sure, we'll take care of this guy. But he shouldn't expect that. Right? Right? Uh, I'm not going to elaborate anymore. Just let you think about that. Sure, we'll take care of the guy to the best of our ability. But boy, when you start demanding, when you start expecting that you be taken care of, Boy, there's something in your heart listening to a preacher talk that way. It's off-putting. You know what? You know why that's off-putting to you? Because it doesn't line up. It doesn't gel with the spirit and purpose of Christianity. The idea behind Christianity is that a man should be willing to forego anything that's necessary for the sake of God's people to be helped, for the sake of sinners to be born again. Do you understand the concept? So the attitude of a guy saying, you've got to pay me X amount of dollars. Listen, I'm not saying that a preacher should not make his needs known. 
What I'm trying to get across to you is the idea of what Paul's talking about. You know in your heart, man, there's just something that doesn't sit right in my heart about a guy saying, I have to have X amount or I can't, I'm not going to come. I'm worth more than that. That does not fit with the spirit of Christianity because the spirit of Christianity is what? It's self-sacrifice. It's a spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it's a spirit of charity. Right? Well, that's the illustration that Paul uses. And what Paul's going to do in the rest of the chapter is say, that's the attitude you should have. I have, Paul said, I have the right to expect that. Let me ask you something. Now, this is going to blow some of you away. If a preacher says, hey, you should pay me $150,000, and the church is able to do that, you should pay me $150,000 a year. If the church is able to do that, pay me $100,000. Paul says he has the right to expect that God's people meet his needs. I'd blow some people's socks off. Oh, that's ridiculous. It's unheard of for you because you live in an area to where the average income is $30,000 a year. But let's talk about ministering in New York City. Different story. You see what I'm saying? Okay. Uh, Paul says, I've got the right to do that. But he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to forego that. For what purpose, Paul? So that the gospel can go out. So that the cause of Jesus Christ cannot be hindered so that God's people can be established. He said, I'm going to walk charitably. He said, I'm going to let all that stuff go for your benefit. You see that concept? That's exactly what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 8. Paul said, I have the right to expect your financial income, your financial means. He said, but I'm going to let that go for your benefit. Here's a Christian in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I can eat meats offered unto idols. It's not going to send me to hell. But I'm going to let that go for your sake. You say, what is that? That's charity. Watch what he says. We've we got to move. Oh, verse 19, watch. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. He's not, he not anybody's servant. He's Christ's servant. But Paul said, I'm going to look at myself as the servant of all men. He said, unto the Jews, I became a Jew that I might gain the Jews. He does that in Acts chapter 26. He takes a vow. He's not obligated to take a Jewish vow, but he does in Acts 26 or 21, I'm sorry. He said, uh, as under the law that, that I might, he said to them that are under the law, as under the law that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, Gentiles, he said, as without the law. He said, when I talk to a Gentile, I don't bring up matters of the law. He said, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake that I might be partaker thereof with you. He said, I'm doing all of this. He said, I, I adapt myself to where people are at. He's not talking about compromise. He's not talking about going to Disney World so that we can win all the Disney World people to Jesus. What he's talking about is People that are limited in their understanding, 
He doesn't come out and expect them to understand more than what they understand. You deal with a Gentile, he don't understand the law of Moses. Well, don't bring up the Passover. That's a, I think you can understand what I'm talking about. He said, verse 23, and this I do for the gospel's sake that I might be partaker thereof with you. Know ye not that they which run in the race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery, you want to be a master in this Christian life? Well, every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible, there, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body. He said, I keep my body under is what he's saying and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Hey, listen, there's a lot of things in this Christian life that you could get away with. There really is. They're not going to send you to hell. And perhaps, and I'm going to leave it at the perhaps, perhaps some of those things that you could get away with that wouldn't send you to hell, man's kept eternally secure by trusting in what Jesus Christ did for him. But just because you can get away with it and not die and go to hell, just because you can get away with it doesn't mean that you should throw everybody else to the winds and say, well, you don't understand. That's your fault. That's your problem. No, no. Hey, listen, if, if you don't understand something about the liberty that I have in Christ, you know what Paul's saying? In a sense, in a measure, that's my problem. Now, if you showed the truth and had some time to grow and you don't want to see those things that way, then that's on you. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 14 where he says, him that's weak in the faith, receive ye. He's a guy who doesn't understand. Receive him. Somebody come in here and sit down with an NIV. We're not going to jump down their throat the first time they come in and sit in here. If they start going around and saying the NIV is a better translation than the King James, we'll go to them and say, hey, you, no, sir, not here. But if they come in and sit down and don't understand, maybe they came from a wrong kind of church, but not going to jump down their throat and say, oh, you're ungodly, you're a rep. No, sir. No, sir. They come sit here. We take responsibility for them. We'll, we'll bear with them and try to get them to the place to where they do understand. You take somebody who jumps down their throat the first time they see that they've got an NIV. What's going on is there's no charity there. Hey, you got any problems in here? Anybody in here got any problems? I guarantee you I got some. Do you know what? Those problems that you have, there are people in here that know you have those problems. I don't know what problems they are. I don't know who knows. I guarantee you some of you folks know the problems that I have. We're all still here. Amen. We're going to run each other off because we got those issues. That's not charity. Amen. Him that's weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. Now, if you want to get in a fight about those things that you're weak about and insist that you're right and the rest of the church is wrong, Okay, then we're not going to receive you. Now you have to leave. 
But just because you're weak in the faith, that doesn't mean people are going to get run off. How else are people going to grow? And one of the ways that we have to do that, according to 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, which we didn't even get to chapter 10, one of the ways that we deal with that is have some charity. Hey, you're going to have to put up with some things. You're going to have to put up with some people. Amen. Amen. That's right. That's the right thing to do. That's not compromise. Not, you, you got an NIV in here. We're not going to let you stand up and teach a class or, you know, preach a sermon. You can hold high standards. You can hold the right standards at the same time of having charity in, in your heart towards people that don't quite understand yet. Amen. All right. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us this morning. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the light that God's word sheds. And Lord God, if there's, uh, Lord, anything, God, that needs to be dealt with, Lord, that I'm unaware of, God, and I, I say anything that needs to be dealt with that I'm unaware of, Lord, let me put it this way. Lord, I know, God, that it was real quiet in here this morning. And Lord, I, some of that might be folks thinking, some of it might be conviction. God, honestly, Lord, that is not my concern. Lord, my concern is to do what you told me to do. And I believe I did that this morning. God, I commit your people, Lord, to your hands and ask you, Lord, to help us. God, Lord, I know myself, God, Lord, uh, walk uncharitably, God, at times, Lord, in my life. God, Lord, often, often in my life, walk very uncharitably. Insist that people be at the place where I'm at. And God, I pray that you help us, God, to recognize, Lord, that the purpose, the Christian purpose, Lord, is to be born again. Lord, begin to develop a walk with God and to begin to mature but, Lord, also not just for us, Lord, but for others. And, Lord, I pray that this would be a church, God, that would be committed that way, Lord, not just to, uh, Lord, uh, bury people alive, so to speak, but, God, Lord, to bring people along, God. And, Lord, we, we pray, God, help us to do those things, Lord. We'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.